some point in life, all of us put our trust in someone who fails us or plans that fail. I remember watching the Winter Olympics last year, seeing the Netherlands superstar skater Sven Kramer lose his bid for Olympic gold because he trusted his coach. In the Olympic finals for the 10,000-meter race, he skated 25 times around the rink so well that he set an Olympic record. He finished a full four seconds ahead of the second-place finisher. He was thrilled. He had just won his second Olympic gold medal. He was a national hero in the Netherlands, known for its skating. And then his coach, Gerard Kempers, broke the bad news to him. Kramer had been disqualified. With eight laps to go, he had changed lanes improperly in the race. What made this disqualification so bitter for Kramer was that he had changed lanes for only one reason. His coach had told him to change lanes at that point. In other words, he had no plans to change lanes until his coach called out to him and directed him to change lanes. And then he was disqualified. In that that situation, that split-second decision that he had to make, Kramer trusted his coach, and it cost him a gold medal. Where do we place our trust? Who have you trusted that has failed you? Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, where we pick up this morning, that we must trust God's will because man's plans can be nullified. People will fail us. Our own plans will fall apart. Our abilities will be neutralized by circumstances beyond our control. Bad things happen to us. People do bad things to us. Our achievements can be nullified by some dumb choices that we make. And that is why we must absolutely must trust God's will more than our plans for life. Follow him, obey him. He knows what is best and does what is best always, and we can trust God with our lives. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. Don't trust your own abilities, first of all, Ecclesiastes 9, because human abilities can be nullified by sudden misfortune. Chapter 9 of Ecclesiastes, where we pick up, verse 11. I again saw under the sun, Solomon writes, that the race is not to the swift, 
and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. Moreover, man does not know his time. Like fish caught in a treacherous net, and birds trapped in a snare, so the sons of men are ensnared at an evil time when it suddenly falls on them. So bad things happen to good people. The fastest runners do not always win the race. The strongest warriors do not always win the battle. The wisest do not always have the most food. And the smartest do, all, do not always make the most money. Stuff happens. The fastest runner trips. The strongest warrior has, an Achilles, has his Achilles heel. I have seen, as I'm sure you have, the smartest and the most talented people fail miserably in life. There are the straight-A students in high school or college who never seem to accomplish much, while the C student is a success. And then, of course, there are the catastrophes that happen to even the most successful people. I mean, who could have prepared for the tsunami that struck Japan? wiping out so many lives, destroying cities and businesses and people's lives torn apart. Who can prepare for that sort of sudden catastrophe in life? It can happen. Who can be prepared for the cancer that invades the body of a woman at the very height of her career when everything is there? For her taking. Solomon tells us that time and chance overtake them all. Now, he's not being fatalistic, he's being realistic. He's not saying that the fates control our lives because he believes in a personal sovereign God, because that's how the book of Ecclesiastes ends, the conclusion of the matter. So you have to read that in. He believes in a personal sovereign God who is in control. But he is saying that from the human perspective, we cannot know what will happen tomorrow. Like like a fish that is happily swimming along in the ocean until it's scooped up in a net. We don't know what's going to happen to us in life. The events can come upon us suddenly. We do not expect them. We are shocked when life is suddenly turned upside down by something we can't seem to control. And everything is changed. This is a reality for every one of us. We're going along fine and suddenly, wham, we're hit by the unexpected. I saw an article in CNN this, this week, Tuesday actually, that shows how fast life can change. A woman named Jenny Hausch was on a chartered boat with her husband and, and her three children in the Florida Keys, and they were out enjoying the sights on this chartered boat and taking pictures. And they were particularly taking pictures of a group of eagle rays as they flew out of the water and then landed back in the water. 
they fly through the air. I guess I've never seen them. Maybe some of you folks have. They fly through the air and then they slam back down into the water. Housh was Jenny Housh was on the in the bow of the boat, right up right up there front, taking pictures of these eagle rays. When she got this perfect picture, this eagle ray flew through the air. She was right in the the bow of the boat taking the picture. One of the rays jumped in the air, and she gets this perfect shot, the captain said. But then he adds that rays always jump twice. And the second jump went right into the boat, and it knocked her flat. Now, you've got to understand this. The, The eagle ray measured eight feet across and weighed 300 pounds with a 10-foot-long tail. And they have stingers in their tails. The Kelly Klein, the charter boat owner, said it keeps slamming and slamming on top of her in the bow of the boat, trying to swim away, of course. And she's underneath this thing. Housh's husband, children, watched in horror. But two fish and wildlife officers on a nearby boat quickly came by to help. They pulled the ray off the woman. Everybody thought she probably was dead. She was fine, not a scratch on her. In fact, they determined to complete the charter cruise that they paid for. I'll bet, though, they weren't standing in the bow of the boat anymore. (laughs) But can you imagine, one minute you're happily shooting pictures... And the next, your body slammed, fish whapped, really, by this 300-pound fish, right? But that's what happens in life sometimes, isn't it? You don't see it coming. And wham! You're slammed down by the circumstances of life. And where do you turn? All of our abilities... All of our skills don't matter at that point when you're slammed down like that by life. You turn to the Lord, for he is the only one you can truly trust when misfortune slams you to the ground. Secondly, human wisdom can be nullified by simple ingratitude. That's why we also ought to trust the Lord and not people. Verse 13, Also this, the preacher says, I came to see as wisdom under the sun, and it impressed me. There was a small city with few men in it, and a great king came to it, surrounded it, and constructed large siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he delivered the city by his wisdom. Yet no one remembered that poor man. So I said, Wisdom is better than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised, and his words are not heeded. So the preacher tells a story, a life story that he has seen, a case study, if you will, in life. A powerful king comes against this very weak, small city with his great army. And he lays siege to the city. But in that city, there is a poor wise man who comes up with an idea... Solomon doesn't tell us what it is, comes up with an idea that saves the city. The word means to rescue or deliver the city from this great army. 
So no destruction in the city because of this poor wise man and his idea. He delivers them from the grasp of the king. But after the city is rescued, nobody remembers the poor wise man at all. Undoubtedly, others took credit for the victory. The local politicians, I'm sure, took credit for the victory. And this poor wise man gets no credit. Nobody thanks him for what he did. But not only that, the poor wise man, Solomon says, is despised and his words are not heard anymore. Nobody listens to him anymore. Maybe he became the scapegoat for something else. We don't know, but nobody listens to this man. Perhaps he's unfairly blamed for something. And others get the credit for success. But at any rate, this poor wise man and his wisdom are essentially nullified by the ingratitude of the people in the city. Now, let's face it. We humans tend to be very ungrateful people. Jesus was entering a certain unnamed village in the Gospel of Luke. And as he entered this village, there were ten lepers who started calling out to him and asking for mercy and healing and hope. These are outcasts. They can't even go into the city in normal life. They can't have contact with people because of their leprosy. These ten lepers call out to him and they plead with him. And he stops and he takes mercy upon them and he heals the ten lepers. He tells them to go into the city to the priests and establish the fact that they are now clean and they can rejoin society and they go running off. But one of the lepers realizes something and turns back and comes back to Jesus and thanks him. And Jesus says, where are the other nine that I healed? They're gone. Only one, only one leper returned to thank Jesus for the healing. Isn't that like us? We want God to fix our problems. We plead with God. We pray to God, please fix these problems. Solve these issues. And when God does, we run off enjoying life and we forget to thank the one who gave us the life. We are ungrateful people. It's even more true in our human relationships, though. Children take from their parents who give and work and provide for them and fail to give thanks to their parents for all that they have done. You work hard on your job with little appreciation sometimes and even sadder is the fact that others get the credit that you deserved. Nobody listens to you. You try to help others and all you do is you get some criticism for your help. A man in the lobby of a post office was writing at the desk there, and he was approached by an older fellow who had a postcard in his hand, a blank one. And the old man said to the fellow that that was there at the desk in the post office, he said, Sir, could you please address this postcard for me? I'm having a hard time writing. So the man gladly did so. He agreed to write also a short message on the postcard, And he even signed it for the man so that it could be mailed. 
Finally, the man doing the writing said to the older man, Now, is there anything else I can do for you, sir? And the older fellow thought about it for a minute, and he said, Yes, there is. At the end, could you just put P.S.? Please excuse the sloppy handwriting. (laughs) Please excuse the sloppy handwriting. (laughs) Not appreciated at all. You know, the sad thing is that church can be a really discouraging place to serve sometimes. Because people, few people, many of you, serve faithfully without appreciation. And then find those who you have helped or served, and they criticize you for whatever it was you did or failed to do or weren't good enough at doing. And it hurts. Sometimes the people we help the most are the least appreciative. I mean, you're aware of the 80-20 rule, right? 80% of the work in a church is done by 20% of the people. But who do we hear from most of the time are the 80% who aren't doing it and don't like how the 20% are actually doing it. And it's sad and it's discouraging. And that's the way it often happens in life. I had a Christian friend years ago, not in this church, tell me that he found it easier to serve the Lord sometimes with non-Christians because he found Christians to be so hard to get along with and he said just plain mean sometimes. Church people can be like that. And when people don't appreciate what we're trying to do, it can easily end up discouraging us from trying to do good things in the future and nullifies all that we try to do. Teresa Kindred from Kentucky tells about an incident a few years ago while she was helping a friend plant a tree in the local park. Her friend had planted 23 trees in this park, um, most of them without any help. It was the, the trees were donated in remembrance of loved ones who'd passed away by family members and through the ministry of this church and that sort of thing. They were memorial trees for people, and she was planting these memorial trees. While they were working, a a woman approached them. Teresa recognized her and assumed that she was there to say thank you to this woman. She said, remember the tree you planted for me the other day? Teresa's friend nodded. She said, you planted it too close to the road. It needs to be moved. And then she turned and walked away. Teresa wrote, I don't think this woman was intentionally rude. She was probably distracted, or maybe she'd had a bad day. But the fact remains that out of the 23 trees my friend planted, only two people remembered to even thank her for the memorial trees. Now, how does that make you feel? When we serve others only to get criticized for the serving, how do you think the wise, poor wise man felt in Solomon's illustration. It makes us not want to serve anymore, doesn't it? Criticism like that nullifies the wisdom and the gifts that people have to offer. I have seen so many, many Christians over the years 
who just end up quitting on serving because of the criticisms and the complaints that nullify their work. So, I mean, one lesson is we need to appreciate each other more, don't we? We should should express that appreciation more than we do the criticism. We all give the best we can. And often those doing the least can be the most critical, and that's sad. But we also need to remember this. Who are you serving? You're really serving the Lord, aren't you? First, and not others. So our faith, our trust, is in whom? It's in Him. It's not in whether or not we get that appreciation or not. Our faith, our trust is in Him, not other people. So other people may turn on us. They may criticize us. They may complain when we've done the best that we can. But we don't put our faith in others. We put our faith in the Lord for what we are doing. It is Him we serve. And He sees all and rewards all in His time, whether others appreciate us or not. The Lord saw this poor wise man, and He knows. Third principle, human achievement can be nullified by stupid foolishness. Chapter 9, verse 17, the words of the wise heard in quietness are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. The chapter division, by the way, comes at a bad spot here, I think, because verse 1 is really tied into this previous verse 18, where he says, Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink, so a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. The January 13, 1992 issue of Fortune magazine featured the biggest business goofs of 1991. In an act of corporate cooperation, AT&T reached an agreement with the power company in New York City, Con Ed. And the contract that they signed stated that whenever power demands exceeded Con Ed, the the utilities grid, that AT&T would lessen their, their demands on the electric utility by throwing a switch, unplugging some of its facilities from the Uh, the grid of Con Ed, and drawing power from some internal generators that that AT&T had at uh, their their station there, their 33 Thomas Street station, where they had these these generators. Well, on September 17, AT&T acted in accordance with that agreement when the power demand exceeded the supply. The generators for AT&T kicked in, The power surge, however, kicked out some of their vital rectifiers, which handled 4.5 million domestic calls, 470,000 international calls, 1,174 flights across the nation carrying 85,000 passengers, and the total communication systems linking air traffic controllers at LaGuardia, Kennedy, and Newark airports, all in one SWAT. The alarm bells that signaled that the rectifiers had been knocked out, the alarm bells at 33 Thomas Street Station, rang away unheeded for six hours. Why? 
Well, the AT&T personnel in charge of the rectifiers at 33 Thomas Street Station were all away attending a one-day seminar on how to handle emergencies. <laughs> Talk about dumb. It doesn't do much good to have a seminar on handling emergencies if you've nobody to handle the emergency when an emergency happens. But so many times, life's achievements can be nullified by some stupid, foolish decision that I make, you make. It's just dumb. And it nullifies all that we want to accomplish. Solomon says that the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of kings among fools. What happens so often is that people gather to hear some influential leader making lots of noise and saying lots of stupid things, and we can all think of examples like this. (laughs) And all this stupid noise drowns out the wisdom of a quiet person. Classic description of politics, isn't it? Political leaders who say stupid things get listened to when wise people can't even get heard. The games we play in life with each other in this world show the folly of following humans. Solomon goes on to say that wisdom is better than our nuclear missiles. But one sinner destroys much good. All it takes is one sinful person making sinful choices. And all the good that has been built up and is being accomplished can be nullified, destroyed. Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. It's a proverb, obviously. One rotten apple spoils the whole bunch, right? Same idea. I mean, you can buy the most expensive perfume, Solomon says, but one dead fly in that perfume ruins it, and it smells like dead flies. So much for the perfume. And he says it's the same with a little bit of foolishness. A little foolishness is more influential, he says, than wisdom and honor. There's a play on words in the Hebrew text here, by the way. The Hebrew word for outweighs or weightier is a synonym for the word for honor. They both come from a concept that value has to do with weight. Because in the ancient world, when they weighed things on a set of scales, that which weighed more had more value. And so the word came to mean that precious, costly, valuable things like gold or something like that would weigh more than hay or grass or something like that. So the weightier was also the more honorable or the more costly item. The word for honor or glory means that which weighs more because it is more honored, it is more valued. So Solomon is saying that all the most honored and valuable things we can think of in life can be ruined 
by some stupid, foolish words or decision that we make. Our most influential people can ruin their lives by some foolish choices, just like a dead fly in the perfume ruins the perfume. Human achievements can be nullified by stupid foolishness. A Harvard economics professor has recently been accused of neglecting the standard market practice of paying for goods and services. He was trying to steal a truckload of manure from a nearby farmer. Philip Casey, says Martin Weitzman, a Harvard University professor of economics, had been stealing manure from the farm for years. Casey found Weitzman on the property, he blocked in Weitzman's pickup truck, and he called the police. At that point, the professor began to bargain a price for the manure. Casey told police he did not enter into that conversation because he'd warned Weitzman numerous times that he wanted the stealing to stop. He offered me $20 for it, then $40. The farm does sell the manure, by the way, for $35 a truckload and uses it to fertilize their own pastures as well. Weitzman was charged with larceny under $250, trespassing and malicious destruction of property for tearing up some land with his tires. Uh, Here's a guy who's a Harvard professor of economics, no less, and he's convicted of a crime. Well, that's bad enough, but his whole career as a Harvard professor has now been tainted over a truckload of Manure. I mean, talk about dumb. But it's an example of the kinds of stupid games that we sometimes play in this life. And a single really dumb decision can nullify all we've worked so hard to achieve in life. None of us know what's coming this year. None of us know what tests, trials, struggles we will face. We don't know what will come around the next turn in life. The question is, where do we place our trust? If it's in our own plans, we're in trouble. If it's in other people, we're in trouble. If human abilities can be nullified by sudden misfortune, and human wisdom can be nullified by simple ingratitude, and human achievement can be nullified by stupid foolishness, then we better not have our faith in humans at all, or our plans for that matter, for they can be all changed through any of a whole bunch of different issues, circumstances, choices, words. So we need to trust God's will because man's plans can be nullified. That is the conclusion Solomon comes to at the end of Ecclesiastes. Where is your trust? Lieutenant George Dixon was a well-respected man in the Confederate Army in the early days of his war of the war. His fiance gave him a $20 gold piece, and he carried it on his person. He was actually struck by a mini ball fired by a Union soldier, but it hit exactly on the gold piece that he carried in his pocket, and it saved his life. The gold piece was dented, but he lived. 
And so everywhere he went during the war, he carried this gold piece with him, for it was his lucky charm. And soldiers said they could often see him fondling and kneading that gold piece during battle and in various situations. Well, Lieutenant Dixon eventually took the coin with him when he served on the CSS Hunley, the Confederate submarine that he believed would break the Union blockade. And after sinking the USS Housatonic, the Hunley, though, sank to the bottom of the bay, taking Lieutenant Dixon and his crew to their deaths. And his shiny little gold piece didn't do him a bit of good, did it? Recently, the coin was found when the submarine was raised. We humans put our faith in many forms of security, don't we? You can think through what those options are. People, jobs, careers, bank accounts, possessions, I don't know, whatever it is. But we put our faith in all sorts of forms of security. But ultimately, there is only one source for life and security, and that is the Lord. I love these words from pastor and author Alan Redpath, and I leave you with these. There is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it has gone past God and past Christ right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with a great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment, but as I refuse to become panicky, as I lift up my eyes to him and accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my own heart, no sorrow will ever disturb me, no trial will ever disarm me, no circumstance will cause me to fret, for I shall rest in the joy of what my Lord is. Great words. What are the dead flies in your perfume? Trust him. Trust him. Father, teach us to rest in you, to know that no matter the messes that come, we can turn and place our faith in you. You will take us through it and you will use us again, and you will be glorified as we trust you, and we will find our ultimate security in you. In Jesus' name, amen.